0: Lord, I, um, gosh, Lord, I'm, when we come to this part of the Bible, words in red, <clears throat> your words, man, I, um, I feel an extra sense of, of respect and trepidation this morning. And we're going to camp out here in a long, for a long time. And boy, Lord, I want, I want, you to speak to us and un, un, uh, reveal and unveil this holy ground to us. I want you to lead us not just on Sunday mornings, but in our own private time as we read it and as we, as we discuss it in our home groups and as we meditate on it and pray through it and talk about it with our wives and husbands and children. And I just ask for a revealing of what this is and what this isn't. You know, Lord, how I personally regard this piece of scripture as um, the greatest words that have ever hit this weary world. May they be the most uh, freeing words and may this be one of the most freeing studies that have ever dawned on our weary hearts. God, would you open up our minds to new things or perhaps, as Matthew likes to say, bringing out things both old and new from his treasures. Um, and help me, help me to be a good guide and do my bit. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, in Matthew, in chapter four, Matthew gave us a summary of the gospel, of Jesus, that, the gospel that Jesus was proclaiming and his invitation to the world to follow him, to follow him in his way. We as Christians, we might be a lot of things, but at a a foundational level, we as Christians are apprentices to Jesus in the way of the kingdom, of the way to being a human, to being a human in light of the kingdom of God that he's bringing. And so we've discovered that following Jesus entails at least three things. One is you wanna just we just want to be with him. He's beautiful. Hopefully, at this point, you are deeply impressed with the person of Jesus Christ, um, that you find yourself drawn to him, the, you know, like a, like a pitchfork to your soul. You can hear the frequency, and it resonates deeply with who you are and who he is, and you just want more. That's, um, that's what Matthew's trying to get at, and to the point because you know, that Jesus is the kind of human that we were all meant to be. Several of us in here, including myself, are, are struggle with things. There's parts of us that we'd like to leave behind, like shedding some old skin and moving off into something new. This is, Jesus is saying, follow me. To be like me, you've got to be with me so that we can eventually live the kind of life that our rabbi would live if he were us. How would Jesus live if he were you? If he were in your situation, with your background, with your marriage, and your kids, and your job, and your upbringing, and your, and your, and your, and your what would Jesus be like if he, were, if, he were, if he were you? That's the idea. And if you were following Jesus, or any rabbi for that matter, you would start becoming extremely acquainted with the things that they were very passionate about. Um, I was talking to somebody the other day that grew up listening to me preach. And he was telling me that he began to, he began to know kind of the ruts that Mike would fall into. You know, the, the things that I was really passionate about. The things that in a conversation, he, he knew Mike's eventually gonna take it here. He's eventually gonna go there. Jesus was the same way. There were things about him that, he, that got him riled up he was passionate about there was a way that he looked at the world Um, there was a way that he viewed reality that he viewed himself and others and the and the world as it was that he would eventually you just give him enough time and certain things would begin to start rolling out of his mouth and that is you guys the sermon on the mount this is a collection of jesus's greatest teachings the things that he was known for that matthew has compiled um, and contextualized into a sermon. But These are things that, it, it probably was an actual sermon, but these are things that, were, that, he repeat, that he no doubt repeated, that he went to often, that he said many, many, many times. These are the things that he was known for. This was his yoke as a rabbi. And as disciples, as apprentices, you would learn the yoke, or the interpretation, or the passions, or the way your rabbi thought, and you would commit those things to memory and you would orally pass them down, or in Matthew's case, you would write them down so that others could understand the yoke of your rabbi. Also, you would have begun to learn the mind of your rabbi, not the material, but the mind of him, the kind of person he is and the kind of person he's not. This is what precisely what we have on the Sermon on the Mount. The sayings we find here, The message we uncover here are the things that Jesus was most passionate about. This is the message, and these are the ideas that he was most known for. They define the way Jesus looked at reality, who he was as a person, and all that he said and did come underneath this holy ground that we're embarking upon. This is quite literally the mind of Jesus I just feel, I'm, I, I'm seriously getting chills even saying that. This is, this is him revealing what he thinks, who he is. This, and in this, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is basically Jesus' manifesto of what it means to be human in light of the accessibility of the kingdom of God that he's bringing on the earth. That's what this means. This is a manifesto of what it means to be human in light of the accessibility, the present reality of the rule and reign of God that is also in him, that he is also bringing. This is his vision for what it means to be human, and this is what it's all about. And for good reason has Matthew five through seven turned out to be the most influential teaching to ever dawn upon this weary world. And please, I'm not saying that other Things that humanity has produced are not, are, you know, are rubbish. I'm not saying that. Of course, there's other amazing things. But this teaching on what Jesus deems to be the good life, the, the best way to be human, is taken, it, taken as a whole, is uniquely profound and powerful. Now, I, I want to preface there's a reason that we spent so long in chapter four defining what, what Jesus' gospel is. Because depending on what you think the gospel is, you will interpret the Sermon on the Mount either to great benefit or to great peril. Uh, this is why I'm nervous. Last week um, I was listening to a preacher, a friend of mine, great man, and in his sermon he defined what the he says, What is the gospel? And he said, the gospel is Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. He's quoting from St. Paul, from the Apostle Paul's line in 1 Timothy. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross to save sinners. Now, did, did Jesus die on the cross to save sinners? Please say yes. Super essential, big deal. Yes, important. We're big fans of that. That is, a, that is um, essentially Paul's summary to his incredible treatise on the gospel of justification by faith, through grace, not by works that anybody should boast. And a lot of people will say, that is the gospel. It is justification by faith, through grace, not by works, so that we don't boast. Um, but this teaching on what uh, Jesus de- deems to be the good life is framed in, the, in his version of the gospel. What did Jesus say? Jesus did die on the cross to save sinners. Yes, there is justification by faith through grace. But my, marg- my argument, and I think you, you might think I'm splitting hairs, but I'm telling you it's incredibly important. My argument is that as essential as those truths are, they are a subplot in the larger narrative, which is Jesus' words of the gospel, which is the gospel of the kingdom of heaven is here right now. And the issue is depending on which, one, which part you emphasize, you come to the Sermon on the Mount and you, you may have all sorts of issues. For example, in a valiant attempt to import Jesus died on the cross to save sinners or justification by faith through grace onto the Sermon of the Mount. I've heard it said that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus is using his exposition of the law to basically crush your pride so that you can come humbly to him for grace. That's what it is. it is. It is to show you that you cannot do this. It's to show you that you cannot live this way. It's to humble mankind. The biggest problem with mankind, it is said, is pride. That's what stops us from, from coming from the gospel. And so the Sermon on the Mount is like his hammer. Boom, and it shatters us, and we, we go, oh my gosh, what I thought I could do before, now I can't do it. Oh, there must be another way, and then Jesus says, there is another way. It's the grace of God. Okay, and immediately, you'll have a couple of problems with that. <laughs> one is a textual problem, and one is a, is a philosophical problem. The textual problem is that you will not find any of that in the Sermon on the Mount. You will not find any of that In the sermon on the mount itself jesus does not say i'm giving the sermon to humble you so that you can realize that you can't live this life uh you know so you're going to go to hell when you die so that you will be crushed in your pride and you'll come to me humbly and then i can i can come in and go whoop but there's grace you just won't see that idea or that philosophy in jesus's mouth in fact there's every indication in this sermon that he expects us to live the way he is preaching this to live. I mean, that, that's the, the straightforward reading of this is that he is absolutely expecting his disciples to practice what he is saying, okay? That's the textual problem. Philosophically, the problem is when you force and squeeze the Sermon on the Mount into this interpretation, you have a faith that um, can't really change you in the here and now. It's an impotent faith. It's simply uh, simply there to make you humble and to come to Jesus. But you'll miss the way of living that can actually has the power to change you, to transform you, to save you here and now, to sanctify you. Uh, Let me put it this way. Would you rather have a great car or would you rather have great car insurance for a car that does not work? some point you want that car to drive, right? Right? My argument is that the Sermon on the Mount is the car that works. It's the living that works. And the great thing is about it, when you come at it that way, you get the insurance thrown in too. You get justification by faith. You get um, that we're humbled and need, we're sinners in need of grace. You get that thrown in also. It's not one or the other. It's what we emphasize coming up to this sermon that will make all the difference in how we read it and how we interpret it. Are, are you following me with that? It's really important that we have kind of, uh, we all have our feet on level ground when it comes to, to that. And this will all come out in, in our section today. Uh, he begins this incredible discourse with a list of nine blessings, or maybe you've heard them called the Beatitudes. That's from the Latin translation of, of the Bible. So let's read them, let's, here we go, let's dive in. Here we go, you can put that on the screen. He says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What an amazing, electrifying, incredible, brilliant way to start a sermon in Jesus' particular day. This would not have been new. This was a normal, rhetorical way that rabbis taught their wisdom or their yoke in Jesus' day and it's actually a tradition that comes straight out of the Bible itself out of the Old Testament can anybody think I'm just wondering if you can think of some famous Old Testament scriptures that start with the word blessed anybody think of it don't be embarrassed it's safe what about the prayer that we're talking about the prayer book in the Bible Psalm the first chapter of Psalm of Psalm 1 First chapter of Psalm One. You know what I mean. Oh man. Yes, that's right. This is this is Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, or Torah, in the law of God. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. And all that they do, they prosper. That's Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Another one is another famous one of David. Blessed is the one, this is my, one of my favorites, whose transgression is forgiven. Right? I mean, right? Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this became such a famous way, these scriptures became so famous, and there's more in the Old Testament, they became so uh, famous kind of rhetorical taglines for wisdom literature that rabbis in Jesus' day, about actually we can find proof 150 years before Jesus on, would teach their yoke by saying, this is what the good life is. This is the blessed life is this and this. And this is if you're blessed and you're fortunate if you're this and you're this and this and this. So Jesus is starting his saying by using a very familiar teaching. His crowd would have no doubt, they would have said, oh, he's a rabbi speaking like rabbis do. This is what he's doing. Now, the word blessing here is actually pretty difficult for us to translate because simply because we just don't have a one-to-one equivalent for this word in, in the English language. It's not the Greek or Hebrew word for blessing or, or like divine theological blessing from God. That's not what this is. There's an entire different word for that um, that has this kind of freighted with this deep, restful, content, theological blessed from God, and that is not this word. This is the word makarios. Can you say it? Makarios, yeah. And it's actually not a religious word at all. It's not a religious word. It's been translated blessed, um, but the problem with that, like I said, it sounds very religious, it sounds very spiritual, but it's not that. It's also, some of your translations might have the word happy, happy are you, Um, And the problem with that is just for us in America, as we'll get into in a little bit, happiness means something different than what Jesus would have meant by that. Um, It was actually more of a general saying that meant you're fortunate or congrats. I guess that would be a good one, actually. Congratulations. Um, Good on you. Okay, there you go. I'm thinking of this as I'm going here. That would be good. Like, good on you. So this is kind of the, it's, it's Black Friday, you're at the store and you're wondering why, but you're there and you're searching for a parking spot and right when you come around and you think to yourself, there's no way that there's going to be a parking spot in the front of the store, but we'll, let's just try it. What do we got to lose? You come around the corner and someone's backing up right in front of the door and, you, and the person in the, in the passenger seat says, Makarios, good on you. We were fortunate. You're in the right place at the right time. I, I have a dear friend named Rama, Rama and her children were in colorado on a on a on a vacation and they decided to stop at a at this obscure pizza place i don't remember what town it was in but they're in this pizza place and it's a two-story there's like stairs that go you get your pizza and you go upstairs and they're eating and it became extremely busy it was a popular pizza place for that particular town and when Rama and her children were finished, they thought, let's go. There's a back door that, took, that went out the, um, out the back and downstairs on the side of the building. And she didn't want to fight the crowd, so she said, she threw her stuff away, and she said to her kids, let's just slip out the back. And she goes out the back and, head, and heads around the corner, and she, boom, runs into this very strong, like the chest of a man. And she looks up, and it was Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman, Wolverine. In, the, in, in Colorado of all places at a pizza place with his daughter. And she went around him kind of not knowing and she, she was like, get yeah, that guy. And then he went in and she heard people, oh my God, and she went around the corner and people were running, Hugh Jackman's in the pizza place. In the pizza place. And she's like, oh my gosh, I just ran into Hugh Jackman. Macari, you're in the right place at the right time. Makarios, good on you. Yeah. That's great. This, you're, you're blessed. Now, yeah. if you return to the list and you put that in mind things can get a little bit confusing here right now, now you look at the I mean the blessings they sound so beautiful at first but then start thinking about this it seems like Jesus is saying hey are you poor congratulations good on you makarios. hey are you sad great this is good makarios to you You're in the right place at the right time. So you can easily think to yourself, Jesus, what in this crowd, no doubt, would have been like, what in the world is Jesus saying? This is how you're starting your sermon? And it's actually extremely easy for us to misinterpret these blessings. In fact, these blessings have been frequently misinterpreted, in, in my opinion, because we have the tendency to lift the Sermon on the Mount out of the rest of the book of Matthew and kind of view it as a a unit of uh, a block in and of itself like a, like an ethics manual like this is Jesus's ethics like here's the narrative of Matthew but let's but this bit is the ethics manual of Jesus right the problem is is that th- this was Matthew chose literally to put this here for a reason and we can do all sorts of Issue, uh, problems when we, when we take it out of there. Um, imagine if there was no chapter four and if there was no chapter five breaking up chapter four from chapter five. You just kept reading. That's the way the original was. There was nothing to break your brain up. And when that happens, uh, or for example, let me give you some examples. I grew up being taught by people that I dearly love and I was given a steady diet of this that blessed are the poor in spirit that Jesus says here means this means people who are humble. They're, they realize their dependence on God. They're humble. And so they, they realize, man, I need God and I'm not doing this myself. And so uh, that's what poor in spirit means. Um, and when you look at it this way, it, it, it quickly becomes something that we're supposed to attain. Like a list of virtues in a way. This is something that we have to do or something that we have to produce when in, a, when in and of ourselves. So, hey, if you want to be blessed by God, be humble. So go, you know, be, cultivate humility, right? Likewise, the same people told me that blessed are, blessed are those who mourn. The second line is blessed are those who mourn over their sin. They realize that they're sinners, um, And that they can't get to God and they're really convicted and deeply saddened by their broken state, by their sin, by the fact that they're enemies of God. And that's what this is all about. Or blessed are those that are meek. Here's one that I've been told over and over again. Meekness is those that have power under control. That's what meek means. I still remember when I was a kid. Someone just told, gave a masterful sermon on this, and they told this story of a, of a little girl who was an equestrian. She rode horses, and she was, she was bridling this big, huge horse, and she was trying to tighten the strap on the horse. And she took her fist, and she punched the horse in the gut as hard as it, and it let the air out so she could tighten it up real quick. And he was saying, now this horse has all the power to crush this little girl, but he had it under control. I remember that just burned in my mind. That was such a great illustration. I just don't agree with it anymore. But, but it was such a great, I mean, it was like, wow, that is so good. Um, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This was like a, hey, you know, you need, you hungry for God. You just love God and you're hungry for God and you want more and more of God. So in other words, the the list is a list of virtues, and therefore also they become very quickly kind of like some de facto commands in order to be eligible for God's blessing. But when you start reading this more closely, and in some ways just take it for what it is, you'll start seeing all sorts of problems with these well-meaning interpretations well-meaning interpretations. One, as we've already seen, the word makarios is not, a, is not the theological word for divine blessing from God. It simply means good fortune or good on you, those types of things. And if you just read it plainly, none of, the fact is none of it says all of that. Nowhere it just simply does not say that to be depend, it, you need to be dependent on God or sorry for your sin or hungry for a relationship with God or having your power under control. That is read into that text. It just doesn't say it. It's our best way of interpreting something in a certain way to make it a little more palpable. And listen, here's the thing. The Greek language has all sorts of resources to say those things if it wanted to. Matthew could have said those things if he wanted to. It's not like he was, oh, I I don't know how to say this. No, the Greek language is very precise and has deep resources. He just doesn't, okay? More on that in a moment. The problem is when interpreted this way, it turns Jesus' list of blessings honestly into a list of cursings in a way because it becomes a new legalism a new twisted way or a new meritocracy and kind of like, you know, hey, go out and, be, go out and get sad. Go out and be poor. It's actually squarely anti-everything Jesus was about. It becomes, it becomes things that you must do or virtues that you must drum up or attain in order to be eligible for Jesus' blessings. In other words, before you come to Jesus, you have to be broken over your sin you have to have a hunger for God. You've got to have all of these things. Fourth, the fourth problem with this is that this list, these lists, um, think with me. This is not, they're just not always true, right? Let me ask you this: Do the meek always inherit the earth? Yeah, I would say sometimes, right? I mean, um, is the meek ruling the world right now? Not, not that I want to make a political statement, but I think it's obvious, no matter what side of the aisle that you land on, when you think of the people leading in Washington, any, any of them, do you think of the word meek? <laughs> do you think of the word humble? Do you think of, do you think of those things? No. Um, do merciful people always receive mercy back? Sometimes, but on a large part, not really. So you have all sorts of theological and practical problems when you interpret this list that way. That just, They're just not a perfect fit. It's like trying to take a round peg or a square peg and shove it into a, uh, uh, into a round hole. It's just, it's not gonna work. Or taking the, the, a puzzle piece that you just want it to work. You know, if you're, you're frustrated, you've been staring at the puzzle for hours and you just want it to go in. And it just, okay, you can take a hammer and kind of make it fit. All of these mistakes are a product, I think, of lifting the Sermon on the Mount out of the greater context of Matthew as a whole, bringing in another emphasis of the gospel into the Sermon on the Mount. I believe keeping it in its context is the key to interpreting these blessings in the whole sermon correctly. Matthew arranged his material the way he did intentionally. Look at verse one. In fact, he even even gives context to this sermon. It says, seeing the crowds, that links us to the previous story in chapter four. That links us to the context of the story already. It doesn't lift it out. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So, we need to ask, who is Jesus speaking to here on the Sermon on the Mount? Who's this directed to? Disciples, right. Who are the disciples? What's that? I just said the debasha. Uh, well, <laughs> followers. Yes, exactly. Who are the followers at this point? What's that? Uh, no, actually, the twelve disciples come in chapter ten. These, at least, we have at least four of the twelve. Uh, we've got those four fishermen. Right? Um, but if you, go, if you go to chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 24, look at it. It says, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them, and here's our word, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we've got the four uh, disciple that will, that will become the inner circle of the 12 at some point. But right now we've got crowds that are following him, hanging on his words, listening to him, trying to commit what he's saying to memory. Uh, yes? just occurs to me the entire crowd would have been rejects in their society. You're right. In fact... Let me just tell you about that. Let me just tell you about These are the oppressed. These are those that are barely scraping by. These are, I mean, just read the list. They're abused. They're victims of injustice. They are oppressed by Rome, depending on what uh, historian you read. We're talking they are forced to give 70, 80, even 90% of their income away to taxes. These are oppressed people. These are people whose bodies aren't working right. These are people whose minds are not working right. <clears throat> the crowd, this is the crowd of nobodies and disenfranchised and losers that are following Jesus. That's who these people are. They are crowding in and following, and they want to hear from him. They're attracted to him. And what did he start announcing and proclaiming when, he started, when they started following him? Make your choice, because the kingdom of heaven is here in me now, and it's accessible um, I, I, I read this man named uh, Stanley Harwaz. He, I could not say it any better than him. Listen to this. He says, Too often, these characteristics of the blessings have in Christian history been turned into ideals and virtues that we must strive to attain. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, they are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us that we should try to be poor in spirit, or mourn all of the time, or try to get yourself persecuted he simply announces the great surprise that these people, Makarios, are not, are, are not significant or honored in their society and are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be first among those who have been called into the kingdom of God. Yes, hallelujah. Now with that in mind, this is how, and I think the only way how Jesus' list of blessings makes any sense. It's a perfect puzzle fit when you keep it there. In fact, the entire Sermon on the Mount only makes sense in light of the kingdom of heaven being here and accessible to you and I right now in the person of Jesus. If you see that, you don't have to alter the text or import meaning or do any kind of fancy kind of gymnastics to make it work or to squeeze meaning into it, it just works. Let me show you. The first blessing, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There are two Greek words that Jesus could have used for the word poor. One is the word "panace," and it means uh, <clears throat> it means just barely making enough to to get by. You have a job, and that paycheck just just gets you gets you there. Okay, Jesus does not use that word. Um, he uses the word potokos, which is a word that means abject, absolute poverty. It means hand to mouth. It means, we're to, we're not, and we're not talking about American kind of poverty, you, you know. We're talking about, um, you know, people that fill, fill their, their stomachs with something that they shouldn't just so they can feel full type of poverty, We're talking about, um, you know, we have some friends in Africa whose kids cannot go to school because they can't afford to buy a number two pencil, which is required to go to that school. We're talking like that kind of, that's what this word patokos means. It means you're, this may be your last day on the planet. Okay. And you, you know, now, and this fits with chapter four. That's his crowd. That's who's come. And Jesus says, Makarios, blessed are you because to you, God has chosen to bring his kingdom first. You're the ones that we've chosen to bring this message to. The Beatitudes are recorded in other gospels, but only Matthew adds the phrase, in, poor in Spirit. Okay, poor in spirit, to this first blessing to be poor. What does that mean? It, uh, so does this, and scholars go on and, on and on and on and on and on and on about this. Does this mean that they're poor economically? Or does this mean that they're poor spiritually? Yes. Yes. These are um, the spiritual zeros, as one commentator puts it. These are people that no one cares what they think about the Bible. <laughs> You know, these are not like your candidates to run a church or people who are going to synagogue faithfully. They probably, they probably aren't. These aren't your people that are reading the Bible or who get the Bible or have these deep insights and you'd want to know, what do you think? These are none of that. These are the spiritual zeros, the nobodies. They don't know Yahweh very well. No one cares what they think. Dallas Willard says that these are those who who can't make heads or tails of religion. I just love that line. They can't make heads or tails. They don't know Torah. They don't know synagogue. They don't know the Bible. They probably don't pray. They are completely and utterly poor and completely unimpressive. People that you would not think should be in the presence of Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus says, Makarios. And here's what, I don't think Jesus is saying, just in case you haven't picked this up, I don't think he's saying it's a good thing for you to be poor. I don't think that's what he's saying. I don't think he's a fan of poverty. I don't think he's a fan of kids in Yemen right now, thousands today who will die. They will die. They are dying now simply because they do not have food. I don't think Jesus is saying this is, what I, this is what I had in mind. I don't think this is, that's what he's saying. These are not the kind of people who would choose to lead, you would choose to lead, I think Jesus is saying, you're blessed because right place, right time. I've chosen you. This is a, out of all the people on the planet that I could have come to, that I could have brought the, the kingdom of God to, I've chosen you guys. He's saying you're fortunate because God has chosen to bring his kingdom to you. Okay, can you just feel the electricity in the crowd? Can you feel it? They would have been hanging on every word this man was saying. We read, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, we read the blessing, we kind of just skip over it. It seems super boring to us. Now does it? Is it popping off the page a little bit? Think of the crowd and who's there. We? Us? She says, yeah, it's for you. <laughs> I'm not going to cry yet. Stop. Let's go to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Again, you guys, it just does not say mourn over sin. It just does not say that. It could have said that, but it doesn't. It, the word simply means Sad. anybody sad here today? Has anybody grieved? Has life not turned out the way you thought it was going to be? Some, uh, some dreams die? Your marriage not work out? Or you haven't been able to have children? Or your children haven't turned out healthy? Macarius, because the gospel is for you. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is for such as these. This is why, thank you, thank you so much. This is why I love Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm sorry, the word just does not mean power under control. It just doesn't mean it. It means powerless. That's what it means. It means those that are stuck, those that can't do anything for themselves, those that can't get out of it, those that can't fix it, those that can't beat Rome, that are oppressed, that are stuck in life situations. Makarios. This is Jesus' crowd. They could do virtually nothing to help themselves out of the situations they were in. They had no power. This isn't they had power, but they were controlling it. They wish they had power to get themselves out of their trouble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. The word righteousness here could use, could mean a theological idea of being made right with God. But throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew uses this word to mean right relationships between you and God. It's a relational word primarily. It's a, it's a uh, and he uses it to talk about a relationship between you and God, a relationship with yourself. Matthew Matthew will use that. Are you right with yourself, um, uh, or to you, or with others, of course, and even with the earth? Are you are you just living a right life, or, or are you? In other words, in other words, if you, okay, and let me say this: if you're hungry, what does it imply? It, yeah, it implies that you don't have something that you need. In other words, he, here's, what we, here's what we would say. Makarios, if your life is just messed up, if you're not right with yourself, and you're not right with God, and you're not right with others, and you see the brokenness and you're hungry for rightness, you can't seem to connect with your husband or your wife, or you can't seem to get through to your children, or you can't seem, nobody wants to talk anymore with parts of your family, or whatever it might be, or you see the war going on, and it just grieves you. If you're hungry and you're thirsty, because you just want rightness in your life, Makarios, the kingdom of heaven has come for you. God has chosen to make his reign and rule accessible to you. You don't have, in other words, if you don't have your life together, you don't have it all figured out. You look in the mirror and you think, "Man, I I should have been over this by now, or shouldn't we have gotten over through this by now?" It's just not right. Can you just feel the electricity going through Jesus's crowd? You could have heard a pin drop. Now, this is not to say that there are no virtues on the list, because there obviously are. In fact, if you look at the second half of the list, you'll see a shift in this regard. The Greek actually differentiates between the two halves of this list. The, both, by the way, Matthew, nerdy, rain man, maybe on the spectrum a little bit, both halves of the list are exactly 36 Greek words per half. Total nerd, Matthew, which is great. The brilliance of him. And the first half starts, they all start, it all starts with the same Greek letter, pi. The second half are closer to virtues. Certainly, followers of Jesus will eventually start to take on his traits. Blessed are those who are merciful, blessed are, the, are, are those who are pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are those who are peacemakers. They'll be sons of God. That was a first century idiom to mean you have the traits of a father. Like, oh, you, you know, uh, it wasn't saying that you're Christians. It was saying, hey, you remind me of the character of God. He's, a, he's fundamentally a peacemaker. But remember, we like peacemakers here in the West. That's a big, it's super popular in Vogue right now. But back then in this crowd, this would not have been a virtue. They would not have wanted a peacemaker. They would have wanted a warrior king to overthrow Rome, to throw, violently throw the boot off of Rome. Peacemaking would not have been, oh, good, let's make peace with Rome. That would not, they would have been like, what? No. Let's subvert Rome. Let's kill Rome. Let's, let's you know, like the Maccabees, you know, 167 years before Jesus. Let's, let's go that route and force them out. Okay. Some things I want to say about this list that we just need to um, highlight here. Number one, this is the gospel of the kingdom. What, what do we know about the gospel? Some people say Jesus came to save sinners. Some people say it's justification by faith. Um, Jesus said in, four, in chapter four, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's, that's a great starting point. But the early church if you, would have, if you would have got this scroll from the early church, in the very beginning, it said, in your Bible, it says, the gospel according to Matthew. And that means everything within, from chapter one to chapter 28, everything that Jesus did is the gospel. And if you turn the page, if you keep going, it'll say the gospel of Luke the gospel of Mark, the gospel of John. It's all, in other words, you cannot interpret any of what's in here outside of this idea of the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is here. And so what, is, what are these Beatitudes saying about the gospel? The kingdom of heaven is here, not for the rich, but for the poor, not for the happy, but to the sad, not the strong, but to the weak, the powerless, those that have no voice at all, not to those who have it all together, but to those who are completely messed up, completely messed up inside, the spiritual zeros, those that don't have, not read the Bible, those that have not prayed very much, those that are new to Christianity, to people who, that no one cares what they think, the completely unimportant Those who are merciful but don't get any mercy back. Those who are pure in heart but can't seem to find God. Those who try to make peace but war is thrust upon them anyway. Makarios, these people are blessed. The homeless that you no doubt passed by this morning to get here. Makarios, the prostitutes on Aurora Avenue. Makarios, those that are stuck Merry Christmas. This is where this is where the that's why it's good news. This is why we love it. This is no doubt why you signed up originally. Are you poor? Welcome to the kingdom of God. You're blessed. And then and then out of that place we have the sermon on the mount. It's really important for you to see that order. The blessings come first. Not this list of character traits and virtues primarily, but this blessing for where you're at, Makarios, and then we get, okay, now here's how you live in light of this kingdom. That's what I, that's what I was trying to say. Do you get justification by faith thrown in? Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. Do you, are you forgiven? Did Jesus die to save sinners? Totally, yes, But first, come as you are. These people just showed up. They didn't earn anything. They just were there. They followed him. He said, "Blessing to you." Everything that Jesus did, from his birth to his flight to Egypt, to his baptism, to his to his time in the desert to when he challenged the religious bigots of his day and stood up against their corruption, to his miracles, to his parables, to all of his sayings, to his death on the cross, to his resurrection and his ascension, it's all the gospel, but it starts with, it's all for you, blessed are you. So, it's really important that we grasp this. This is our hope. If we start out backwards, we, we'll think, oh man, I have to, okay, I've got I've to kind of drum up what I've never been able to drum up on my own anyway humility. You know, I, my entire life, have been extremely proud of being humble. Thank you for that courtesy laugh. I try. Okay, secondly, um, this is the gospel, and I hope you see how beautiful it is and who it's to. Secondly, this is countercultural. It's, it was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now. Um, let me read to you. I told you in the beginning that uh, rabbis taught this way. They would say, blessed are, here are the fortunate people. This is the good life. Blessed are this, blessed are that, blessed are that. Well, 140, or 150 years before Jesus, another man named Jesus, um, a rabbi, um, Jesus um, Ben, ben Surak, or, uh, or son of Surak, he wrote, he was this famous rabbi, and people would follow him, and he had his own list of blessings. Let me read you this list. This is from Jesus, 150 years before the Jesus that we're reading about. Okay? This is it. He says, I can think of nine whom I would call blessed, and a tenth that my tongue proclaims. Here we go. Here's who he says. This is the good life. A man who can rejoice in his children. It's good. Good, but you have to be a man, apparently. Man, okay. A man who lives to see the downfall of of his foes. In other words, you see your enemies crushed. You know, you, so you win. <laughs> you're, you're a winner. You beat everybody. And at the end, you come up on top. <laughs> happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. Right? And no one, She doesn't argue. She submits to you. She does what you say. You know, all of that. You're happy at that point. She may not be, but you will be. Okay? And the one who does not plow with, okay. And blessed is the one who does not plow with both an ox and an ass together. I mean, because, you know, no one wants that. Uh, Happy is the one who does not sin with the the tongue. In other words, you just say the right things at the right time. And the one who has not served an inferior. So you're on top. You're the boss. You're, You're in charge, right? This is kind of, we feel pretty good about this list, you know? It's like, ooh, yes. No one gets, happy is the one who finds a friend, yeah? And the one who speaks to attentive listeners. So you, you know, you walk into a room and people are like, ooh, what's, what are they going to say? You know, so profound, so good, you know, that, that type of a thing. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior in the one who fears the Lord. Fear the Lord, fear, the fear of the Lord surpasses everything to whom we can compare the one who has it. Okay. This is just not the list of Jesus of our Jesus 150 years later. This is Jesus came. So this is this is a quote of a very popular rabbi that would have shaped the thoughts of the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. This would have been so countercultural to them. And Jesus here pronounces his blessings and he says, "No, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the ones that can't beat their enemies." Blessed are the ones that lose all the time. Blessed are you if you're just deeply sad. Blessed are you if you can't get it right. Blessed are you, I mean, you, you can see how countercultural this was. And it's also, in the same way, it's countercultural for us today. This is, this is, our, this is our upstream uphill battle here in the West in the Seattle area um, because, because we're American. The American project... Is literally built on the idea of the pursuit of happiness, which is fine and good and wonderful. But the problem is what is what we have now determined makes someone happy, or what happiness is. The American gospel is the gospel of happiness through success, through upward mobility, through, of health, of beating the odds, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps, getting it done. Pulling yourself up and you listen to every politician. I came from this family that didn't have two pennies. I mean, it's almost the same narrative every time. But I started this business and I did all this and I did all that. That's the American catchphrase. You are strong enough to beat all the odds. It's about beating all obstacles, conquering all your problems, being the captain of your own ship. Setting your own destiny. Happiness in America means strongest, successful, beautiful, sexy, smart, talented, charismatic, with healthy, smart children. It means wealthy. It means a house with a couple investment properties on the side, perhaps. It means a nice nest egg in retirement. Now look, none of those things are bad in and of themselves. If you have those things, you are blessed. Consider, consider tithing. <laughs> you know, if you, that, it's great if you have those things. But they truly are blessings. But here's the thing. What happens when you get sick? What happens if you get to a certain age and you're still not married? What happens, um, or what happens when you do and then your marriage sucks? <laughs> you know, the person It turns out the person's not who you thought they were. And there's betrayal. Or when you're on your third or fourth miscarriage. Or when your kids are not healthy or smart. Or when you're not pretty or skinny or sexy. Or when your business isn't successful and you end up strapped in debt. Or when tragedy strikes. Or when you've been let go. Or when the market fails. Or when you work two jobs and you still can't pay those bills. Or when you... And on and on it goes. Our, that's where the American gospel stops. We would say, you are not blessed. If you're not on the on the list of our culture, you will not be blessed. You are less than. You don't match up. If you don't have the gadgets, if you can't afford the stuff, if you can't, you, you don't match up. You feel like you don't belong. But Jesus, Jesus shouts off this page through history, right to our hearts, and he says, no, blessed are you. Blessed are you. The kingdom of heaven is near to you. And this list, because of that, I think forever redefines who is actually blessed. Forever. Jesus, in one swoop, forever redefined, what it means to be blessed. There is, it means that there is actually a blessing, a unique blessing, not just in our pain and suffering, but actually because of it. Just like the, in Genesis, the God that spoke the world into existence, the words of Jesus just, let's change, you are blessed uniquely. You are uniquely blessed because you're suffering. There is a Christians and followers of Jesus understand, okay, the more pain I'm in, it's like, you know, it's like a furnace. It gets to a certain cold outside and it kicks the hope kicks on. Okay, you're in this pain. You're in this hurt. You're in this abandonment. You're in this betrayal. Where are you? I'm closer to you because you came and you suffered. You took on humanity's plight. You bowed your head and dove right into the storm of suffering and death so that you could call us blessed. One final word to those of you that may not be on Jesus' list. Maybe you're not poor spiritually or economically maybe you're not your life's going really well right now maybe you're not mourning or sad it's great you know uh, maybe you know you're not weak you have a lot of power that's wonderful I don't want you to feel less than for not being on this list again that'd be inverting it into this weird list of virtues and you know all of those things that's awesome I would say be grateful and realize what your blessings are for like In Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and said, I'm gonna bless you so that you can bless others. Realize, God has blessed you to make you a conduit of blessing to others, whether that be material riches, maybe your home, your finances, uh, whatever that might be, but also your spiritual knowledge. Some of you are, okay, just by virtue of the fact that you are living where you're living, you have more spiritual knowledge than most people around the world. What a blessing. You are rich. Uh, This Bible study alone has given you so much richness, just being able to read it in a country where we're not gonna get stormed in by somebody and we're gonna scatter and be thrown in prison for reading this. What I don't have to do is rip a page of Matthew and give it to Bob and rich off the second page and give it to Kristen and and rip off Matthew and then say, okay, we're gonna meet at these coordinates and we'll get it together and then we'll glue it together and then we'll read it. And in the meantime, while you're traveling and smuggling it, memorize it, memorize it. That's happening right now in China and North Korea. That is how the church is operating there. They will rip it up and give it to each other and hopefully meet someplace and paste it together. It's so precious to them. Oh, you guys, you are rich. Share it. Consider yourself blessed so that you can bless others. Consider opening your home Buy someone some coffee. Uh, give the gift of your rich attention. Look someone in the eye. Ask them questions. And when you encounter the afflictions of this world, pronounce a blessing. Not because you're poor, you're like this person, you know, but because, hey, the kingdom of God is near to you. God's heart beats for you. Jesus, I count myself blessed because I'm in that crowd. I am poor and hungry. I see the brokenness in and around me. Thank you, Lord, for coming to get me. Thank you, Lord, for coming. Thank you, Lord, for coming to get us, and I pray that we could even hear your voice even now as we respond to you and feel like the luckiest people, right time, right place to hear your voice. And thank you for this sermon. In Jesus' name, amen. One last thing I want to point out. Notice the here and not yet principle of the kingdom. I I thought about maybe I shouldn't say this, but I think it's super important actually. It's worth noting here. Did you notice that the first blessing and the last blessing blessing, are in the present tense? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of God. But then all of them in the middle are in the future tense. And I want to point that out because that is the tension that we live in. We live, the the nature of the kingdom of Jesus is a here and not yet type of a kingdom. It's here, but the merciful right now, or the meek are not ruling the world, are they? Jesus would say, not yet. It's starting to happen, little by little. Or those that give mercy are not receiving mercy back. Sometimes they do. But it's, this is a growing kingdom that is culminating towards an end. So we find ourselves in the, um, scholars call it the in-between, the, the already and, yet, and not yet, in this kind of fold of this epic of theological redemptive history where the kingdom of God is available, and yet it's not, it's not culminated yet. It's still yet to happen. It, and th- I, the reason I think it's important to point this out is because this is our hope, it will happen, he promised. It will happen. Blessed are you if you're merciful because don't lose hope, you will receive mercy. Blessed are you for pure, being pure in your heart, you will see God. Blessed are you that try to make peace. It might seem futile, but you, you will. The peace of God will come, it will. And I had to point that out because it's our hope. That's how we get out of bed in the morning. When we see the not yet, we think someday it will. And I can sow those seeds and contribute to that progress even now in God's kingdom. Amen?